Hi everyone, Tiffany here with a super quick note that this podcast was recorded as part of a previous bundle season. That means that the dates that you're about to hear for the bundle, well, they're no longer correct. If you're interested in seeing what the dates are for this year's sale, please visit thebellydancebundle.com. There you'll find all the up-to-date information on our upcoming bundle. While the dates may be wrong and the class mentioned here isn't available through us any longer, many of our guests still have their courses available for purchase individually, so please do feel free to click through to their offerings and take a look. You're going to want to check it out after hearing how brilliant they are. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. It's Yalla Rocks, episode 6, and today we're talking all about Zills. play Zills as part of your personal practice, or do you leave that for the classroom? Your neighbors may or may not appreciate the answer to that question if you live in an apartment. But seriously, Zills are, and have been, as you'll learn today, around for thousands of years. Thousands. And while we can't trace the origin story of our dance, we can do quite a good job tracking Zills back into the past. While not to their origin, to at least a time that I personally find completely mind-boggling. So today, our guest Dawn provides some context for the history of Zills and brings to the table some amazing items from her research that can help inspire you to pick them up in your personal practice. But don't worry, it's not all history if that's not your thing. We also talk about how the popularity of playing Zills has changed over the years and some wonderful tips on how to improve your practice with these tiny instruments. And if you love the history, well, then you're definitely not going to want to miss this year's Belly Dance Bundle, where Dawn will be doing a whole talk expanding on what we speak about today with a slew of photos and more to share. The 2019 Belly Dance Bundle will be on sale from October 16th to the 23rd, so be sure to sign up for our newsletter at thebellydancebundle.com or follow us on Instagram to stay in the loop. Oh, and one other thing before we jump in. I know that many of you may only be familiar with the timestamps of BC and AD, but here in this interview, Dawn will be using CE for common or current era, the equivalent of AD, and BCE, before common or current era, equivalent to BC, just in case so that you can have some reference if the terms are unfamiliar. dancers and welcome to Yala Rocks, the belly dance podcast that helps you design your personal practice. I'm your host Tiffany and joining us today for one of our belly dance bundle minis is a dancer well known for her work on a suit on Zills and for her amazing collection of vintage photographs. Dawn Devine. Welcome Dawn, how are you doing? I'm doing great today. It's a beautiful sunny day in Silicon Valley, California. So Don, you have so many books. You've written so many books. I'm sure that almost everybody listening to us, if they don't own one of them, they've seen them. Because uh. <laughs> there's all the costuming books, there's the Asut book, there's the Zill book. I mean, you write a lot, which is awesome. Oh, well, I, I, uh, I've written a lot. I wrote my first book in 1993. So I, although I've written and published 22 books so far, um, and there's about, I think there's 15 books in print right now. Um, I'm in the middle of sort of uh, 
redoing some of my older older works to be more relevant to today's um, belly dance style and costuming. Yeah, that's um, exciting. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just work. It's just all work, but I love it. I'm passionate about the subjects. I tell people I am not a jack of all trade. I am mm -hmm. actually a master of a few. That's it. That's that's all I know is art history, costumes, costume history, belly dance, and that's it. And and then I like to travel. So it's <laughs> it's. Uh, I've I've been very careful. I learned early in my dance career to have a very separate hobby. So okay. If, yes. If I was going to make belly dance a career path, and I needed to have a hobby unrelated, and so that's where travel comes in. That's you know that's advice that I don't think I've ever heard from anyone, but that is so true. That once you kind of take belly dancing as a professional thing. If it started as a hobby, you kind of have to replace the hobby aspect of your life. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people, they get burned out because when they make that shift. So I meet a lot of people, of course, because I'm a costumer and I teach costuming classes. I meet a lot of people who go, oh, I love costuming and I go to costume conventions and, and, I, and it's lots of fun. And then they go, I can make money with this skill set. And then they start sewing and they go, wow, I no longer want to make clothes for myself. I no, want, I no longer want to make costumes. And oh, this is drudgery because getting paid, it turns it into a business. And then the hobby aspect just completely diminishes. And I know so many dancers who start teaching or performing seriously and then dance becomes a, a career and you can't treat it like a hobby anymore. You just can't. Yeah, that's so. We went a little off topic right off the bat. I'm sorry, there, I'm so I sorry. No, I did it. <laughs> I think that's great advice for anybody who's listening who either is a professional or wants to become a professional. Keep that in mind. Yeah. Um, so, Don, how how did you get into this to belly dancing? Did it start as a hobby? So, well, yeah, because I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. um, so I started, I had a weird origin story. It was an, so I'm going to go back, back before the turn of the century, a long time ago in a, in a town far, far away. So I was a, I was a ballet tap jazz, um, kid okay. and I had a major accident and smashed my ankle to smithereens. Gone was my hopes of being a rockette. Um, and I, I decided, well, okay, what am I going to do? And, um, I decided to look into first Tula, which is very flat footed, not as much on, you know, on your, on your toes. And the hula dancer actually pushed me to take belly dance. She's like, Oh, you're, you're a natural. And, you know, I was at the SCA and I saw it at the Ren Fair and it was just one of these things that was sort of, you know, cultural exposure. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I took my first belly dance formal class in 1984. And uh, became a professional dancer six months later, only because it was a different time in a different era. You can't really do that anymore. Yeah. But back, so. back in the day before the internet, um, uh, you know, dancing in, an, in a restaurant, in a family owned Greek restaurant was a very different experience than it is today. Mm -hmm. And when in all of this did your obsession with Zills really get started? <laughs> so my my although I started dancing in 1984 in 19 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in 1985 I relocated to San Diego and my dance mommy Serena spelled with a C, Serena, um, 
she was a professional dancer in the Greek um, restaurant circuit in San Diego. And she had requirements. If you were going to get to open for her or if she was going to nurture you to become a professional, you had to hit certain benchmarks. And one of them was playing finger symbols for 45 minutes because because a, a dance program is 45 minutes long. And so you needed to have them on your fingers. You needed to be able to play different moods and melodies. You needed to play rhythmically, but also lyrically. And you had to know the music and really be able to accent with your finger symbols. You also needed to learn to dance with your finger symbols, not making any sound. Because a lot of people, they're you know, as they're moving, their finger symbols will just like kink or clank or whatever because they're not mm-hmm. controlling them. So for her, it was as much about wearing them silently as it was playing them. And she had these three distinct ways of playing them plus silence. And so you had to be able to like pass that knowledge and then you could be considered. You also had to make your own costume and you had to be able to put together a 45 minute program and dance it through and prove to her that at the end of the program, you weren't dying, you know? (laughs) Um, So, so it became an integral part of my dance education starting in 1985. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it was, it was a different, again, I'm going to, it was a different time back before the turn of the century when we were required to perform with finger symbols. And in this Greek community that I started dancing in, in San Diego, there were quite a few live music opportunities. And so you needed that, that ringing zill sound to announce that you were coming onto the dance floor. So it was basically Mm -hmm. heralding your arrival to the audience. And then you needed to be able to interact with the live drummer. Well, you hope he was live. (laughs) lively drummer and to to play with the bazooki player the oudist so you know you needed to interact with the band because you were part of a show you were you were an entertainment unit i wasn't a dancer to to canned music mm-hmm. so, this, yeah i'm like so jealous of all the things you're saying because it's that's not like you said it was a different time and that isn't how my like beginning years as a dancer mm-hmm that's just not how it was. And it's, it was really hard to even get that. If you wanted to find live musicians where I came up, there weren't any, uh-huh. you know, well, it's, it's like amazing to hear you talk about it. Cause it's, it's awesome. That sounds like well, awesome. It's a different community. So in San Diego, in the eighties and nineties, there were a lot of Greek restaurants, family owned and run with, um, uh, you know, like there was a pool of about 20 musicians and they and any given night you would have four or five different musicians who were performing together sometimes they jammed a lot sometimes they weren't some of them it wasn't really like a this is the house band situation you know you would have so and so on keyboard and so and so on you know on whatever stringed instrument was the flavor of the day i did have the opportunity to dance with john belzikian uh, quite a bit um, because he 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 was in LA and his southernmost uh, place uh, uh, was the Armenian Grill or he was playing at the Grecian Gardens in San Marcos or excuse me yeah in San Marcos and so those were his two southernmost regular gigs mm-hmm. those were my two northernmost regular gigs so <laughs> that opportunity to perform regularly with John Belazikian but back in the day you know (laughs) so So when did this so you start dancing you Mm -hmm. 
you have these requirements now to learn mm-hmm. how to play the zills, 45 minutes. You really get into the playing of them. And right. the theater is not the right word, but the theater of them as part of a show. Mm-hmm. When then did all of that interest turn into research? So, um, well, so that's my belly dance career. All over in academia. So I was, uh, I was hell bent on becoming a professional costume designer in the theater. And that was where I was headed as a career path. And so I, I did an associate's degree in fashion design. And then I did a bachelor's sort of double major at UCSD, University of California, San Diego, where I double majored in art history and theater. And I worked in the costume shop. I, I was loving it. Wonderful. But I realized I didn't like the theatrical, professional theatrical, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, work like a demon, work like a demon, unemployed. And I realized that that cycle was not, it did not suit my bookwormy side. You know, it wasn't regular. It was a little, well, it was very up and down. And, you know, we talk about gig culture today. I was looking at gig culture in a really sort of fundamental way and looking at many, many years of earning my chops, you know, you know, serving time, you know, working my way up. So um, I decided after five seasons that theatrical costuming wasn't for me, but I had fallen in love with art history and finger symbols in art history was not really, you know, it wasn't really done. So what I started doing was collecting images of dancers through time wearing finger symbols because dancers through time, they also carry veils and they also dance with bands and at different time periods, they were depicted in different ways, et cetera, et cetera. And so finger symbols in the context of research came about via art. And when did finger symbols happen? How did they happen? It is the one place where we as dancers can connect the furthest and deepest back into antiquity. And, you know, so when people are going into these myths and legends and, you know, oh, sacred prostitution and goddess worship and all these sort of myths that surround the origin, the mystical, you know, lost in, in the mists of time origin of belly dance. In actuality, we can, we can say, well, you know, finger symbols were invented, boom, at this, in this time period. And so that is our, our deepest historical connection that we can trace. And that's what fascinated you about it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, when, as a historian, you know, I'm making air quotes now, as a historian, my goal is to go back as far as I can. We'll never be able to find origin points for our dance, but we can go back and say, this is when it first appears in the historic record. And that is my goal is to create this timeline of dance where X appeared in the historic record here, Y appeared in the historic record there, because history is in the shape of a funnel. And so today we have this huge, broad internet, worldwide web research libraries, everything's online, right? But as you move back in time, the source material becomes thinner and further apart. And as you go deeper into history, like a funnel, it gets, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And so your data, data points become further and further apart and you, you, you get to a point where you run out. And so that becomes your, this enters the historical record here. 
And the assumption, of course, is always it existed beforehand. We just don't have proof. Don't have that proof. Yeah. So this dovetails perfectly into your contribution to the 2019 belly dance bundle um, is a talk on the history of finger symbols from antiquity until today. So can you tease us with a snippet of that? Like how old are Zills? Like how far back have you traced that historical record or have others traced that historical record of, of Zills? So finger symbols are made of metal and metal is a durable material that was um, invented by man, teased out of the rocks sometime in the eighth century BCE. So we're talking 7,000, 6,000 BCE. The first metal that man really pulled out of the rock was gold and copper. And so during this era, you know, and, and we have very few objects that, that date back to that era, but during this era, man discovered metallurgy. Mm-hmm. And from that point forward, we begin to see objects it's in the Chalcolithic or the copper era when we first start seeing man-made tools and jewelry objects made out of these two metals. And it wasn't until the bronze era when the copper was combined with uh, tin to make it stronger, strong enough to um, withstand beating Mm-hmm. that we find finger symbols first appear in the archaeological record. So we're looking at maybe 3,000 to 2,000 BCE. So that's 5,000 years ago from today. That's amazing. Yeah. I think it's pretty amazing. Yeah. So we don't really have examples in copper because copper was a soft, very malleable metal. And at that time, we're deep in antiquity here, um, Uh, metal was recycled. Metal is a fully recyclable material. So things that were made out of copper and became deformed or misshapen or lost their edge or whatever tool or instrument was being made, you could melt it back down. You could literally throw it back into the the fire and melt it back down. So we don't really have um, any record of purely copper finger symbols. But in the Bronze Era, once they became um, durable enough to last a lifetime, then people were buried with their finger symbols. And so we start finding them in burial um, situations. So somebody with jewelry and clothing and finger symbols, and because they're metal, they survive in the ground. That's fascinating. And you have to wonder, like, were they musicians? Did they dance? Like all these things that we can't know. Well, so by the time the, by the Greco-Roman era, era, so we're talking about um, the Hellenistic world um, of about uh, 400, 300 BCE, right? So we're Mm -hmm. moving forward in time. So in Rome, we were were very lucky to have the record of um, Herculaneum and Pompeii. And when Mount Vesuvius erupted in the, in the seventies, um, common era so in the mm-hmm. in the 70s um the it preserved everything it preserved household items it preserved you know just it, it's a snapshot of what life was like in rome at that time and in the roman wall paintings 
we have images of dancers performing with symbols. Now in Rome, they preferred hand symbols, so not played on the fingers, but rather played with the hands, but still small, finger, finger size to about five inch size. So we're still looking at very small symbols. Um, but in, in these Roman wall paintings, women are dancing, men are dancing with these symbols. So we have this record in Rome of people dancing with their symbols. Now, the preference in Rome was hand symbols versus finger symbols, but in the same era, in these further east, and we're talking about Anatolia, modern day Greece, and the Levant, sort of, you know, what is now Jordan and Israel, today we find burials with four symbols. And you would only have four symbols if you were playing them on your fingers. So generally speaking, um, symbols were used in a variety of different ways, the same symbols, shape and size. So you would have them as part of rattles or crotales. You would have them as hand in pairs, as hand symbols, played either with a string or chain or clapped. And then you also had sets of four that would be played, mounted and worn on your fingers. This is awesome. <laughs> Yeah, so this is, <laughs> you asked for a teaser, and I'm like, yeah, this is a teaser, but this information, I'm going to be sharing all the images, all the source images that support and document yes. research, so. And where, so this, so you've written a book on Zills, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. what is the, the name of that book? It's called Zills Music on Your Fingertips. It was actually yep. part of the first bundle. Yes. So people who got the first bundle will have a digital copy of that book. And several people contacted me after the bundle and asked for the source material. And so this year I'm presenting the source material because, of course, I illustrate my books. So Zill's Music on Your Fingertips is an illustrated book because you can't really, you know, share photographs from the British Museum. You know what yeah. I mean? So, um, so I illustrated these, these antique finger symbols and, uh, it's a great book. It's full of wonderful information, but it, it's a secondary source. The primary mm -hmm. source are the actual finger symbols that have survived in museums worldwide. And this talk that you're giving in the 2019 bundle is full of those primary source images. Yeah. So yeah. then I want to ask, how do you go about finding these primary uh, sources. So, so let's dial it back to, to college. So I, I, I became fascinated with images of dancers and images of dancer accoutrement, you know, all of the things that dancers use. And then moving backwards in time, I made the jump from art history to archeology span and started collecting images of, of symbols. I was very lucky. I got to go to France. I got to go to the Louvre and see um, second century CE um, Egyptian finger symbols. I got to see them in real life. I was like, and that was the moment a light bulb went off in my head. I bet you there are finger symbols in museum collections all over the world. And this was back in 92. 94, 93, something like that. And uh, before the internet was a, a real thing. And uh, yeah, so that's what I did. So I was living in San Diego and my first pair of an antique finger symbols that I got to be like, see and, and like almost touch, almost touch, like there they were, was at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. 
And the thing is, is that these ancient zills are in collections all over the world. They were so common that every major museum has some. And once I made that connection and went, oh my gosh, if they have an antiquities collection, they probably have finger symbols, but they're not interesting to display to the general public. Mm-hmm. So they're in these holdings hidden behind the doors of the archive. So yeah, so I've spent you know, a lot of time kind of figuring out where they are and how I could get to them. And sometimes I randomly find them, you know, like I'll go into a, a museum. I had this experience in 2016. I went to the, the museum in Bristol, the museum in Bristol. And we're just walking around and they have a little tiny Egyptian exhibit. And I was, I was traveling and we didn't have much time. So we were like going through it at the speed of like crazed, crazed women. (laughs) And afterwards we were back at our hotel looking at our photographs we took and there were finger symbols on display in the Bristol Museum in London, or excuse me, Bristol Museum in Bristol, UK. And there were, there were finger symbols we didn't even notice. I was taking pictures of clappers, you know, like um, ivory um, Egyptian clappers, Mm -hmm. right? Which is a relative of finger symbols and you know it's a Coptic idiophone just like finger symbols are but um anyways and then down here to the right were finger symbols <laughs> and I just no. was like no so I have a photograph and I was there but I actually didn't even notice them they weren't well lit they weren't they were they weren't featured they were just part of this all this sort of here's a bunch of Egyptian stuff in a case that's so interesting because you're you're right like if you don't have a necessarily a dance background or a music background i'm sure it's is the other group of people that would be really interested in zills like uh-huh. they're not that interesting to display yeah talk um, about to the general public and so like they just probably don't put too much effort into doing it it's not like a mummy you know yeah. everybody wants to see the mummies absolutely absolutely it just doesn't have that cachet it's not they're not building an you know a whole exhibit around around ancient symbols is just not happening and we wish it would happen though wouldn't that be we really i'm like that's what i'm thinking i'm like could we like get them all together (laughs) make it happen certainly make a virtual gallery with with links well and that's kind of what you're doing here (laughs) that's the whole mission here that's what i'm doing with my talk and in fact you know people who get the bundle um with the um presentation comes a you know a pdf with active links to all of these museum collections that i'm going to share with in in the course of my talks so yeah That's i'm gonna awesome. yeah because i figure the people who are interested in my material are people who are also going to teach and share this material with their students and friends and dance and so i want to give them the source material i don't think knowledge is proprietary i like to share it with everyone that's a great mentality to have, I think, <laughs> as, as an academic. And because like, we rely on people like you to do this work for us. <laughs> like, let's just be straight up. Our crazed, obsessed people to do the work. We, yeah, well, you know, it's my pleasure, actually. See, really and that's, that's why we rely on you, Don, because you would do it so much better than we could. You know, it's up to us to find the things that obsess us, that we just are driven batty by <laughs> to learn those things and then share those things with everybody else it's like oh you have to find your like niche in the research world and then Mm -hmm. go in that direction so like thank you so much for making this one of yours because oh well it's (laughs) my pleasure my pleasure absolutely my obsession (laughs) right that's but that's the best way it's the best way um 
how then do zills play into your personal dance practice? And I, that pun is intended. <laughs> well, so, so going back to the story, I told my origin story, I feel like a superhero back mm -hmm. to my origin story. So when I was learning to play finger symbols, um, you know, and I had this, you know, teacher that I look up to her, let's, let's call it like it is idol worship. And I wanted to be as good as her. That was my goal. And so as I worked and, and, and studied with her, her, um, her knowledge base was imprinted on me. And so for me, I also go back to that. You have to learn to play it rhythmically. You have to learn to play it, um, lyrically accents and silence. And so for me, I'm always putting my finger symbols on during practice with the goal of hitting all four of those criteria. So if I'm doing a toxeme, you know, and, and I, I, I rehearse routines. So mm -hmm. I will, my, my practice set, uh, you know, one of them will be structured like a 45 minute dance routine um, that I don't, I no longer dance in restaurants. I'm, I'm over 50. I'm, I'm retired from that game. That's a, you know, I'm not a showgirl anymore, but, uh, but I'm still putting on a set and going, okay, here's my intro music. I'm getting warmed up. I'm doing my cardio. I'm playing Zills. And then as I move into the toxin portion where I'm really doing isolations and isometric exercising with the various parts of my body, I'm keeping my Zills still with my goal of moving through all these arm formations without a jingle or an accidental clank. Right. And then, uh, then it'll move into the drum solo in the drum solo. You play accents rather than with the beat really. And then in the what we used to actually call the tipping phase of the routine then you play with the beat and you're playing rhythmically so you enter rhythmically you end rhythmically you play lyrically when it's appropriate you go silent during the talk scene you do accents during the drum solo and so i'm always practicing that structure um, as i have gotten older my finger symbols have gotten smaller and I am a firm believer in wearing finger symbols that are sized to fit your skill rather than sized to fit your hands. Oh. So, um, so like you, when you, when you buy finger symbols, you know, I, and I'm just going to, I'm going to use Saroyan as an example, because they have a huge selection of sizes. You could go, wow, my teacher plays, you know, those dervish style, style zills. You could buy them and you could feel completely incompetent because you, they're huge and they're hard to play and they're clanky and, and in the hands of a master, you know, they sound good. But if you start with Tinker Zills, the tiniest, 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 you can build speed. They don't hurt. You can build up. You know, you wouldn't go to a gym and start off with a 200-pound leg press. And that's the same with Zills because you're actually lifting weights with your fingers. And so as I have gotten older and wimpier, <laughs> let's face it, you know, my hands aren't as strong as they used to be. Pickle jars are a little challenging sometimes. <laughs> so I have gone down in my finger symbol sizes. So instead of lifting five pound weights, I'm lifting a three pound weight instead. And so I really think that, you know, if you want to build speed and you want to build um, precision, you practice with smaller zills and then work your way up. That's, that is a fascinating 
way to look at it because that's not something that I've ever heard really mentioned because you are, you're right. You're lifting weights with your fingers. Uh-huh. Yet so many of us go for the bigger symbols off the bat. They, they, even the small ones make great sounds. It's not like the smaller ones make less good noise. Right, right. They, and just as lyrical, they can and be. Think, and think about you're, you're adding that weight, and it might only be an ounce or two of metal, but you're adding that weight. So when you have your arms fully extended or you're moving through arm paths, you are also carrying a weight along with you. So if you start small, you can build beautiful arm paths and then work your way up rather than having, you know, like chicken arms because your finger symbols are too hard, um, too big and heavy for your shoulders and your back to support when they're ex fully extended on the ends of your arms. So that's, that's fantastic advice, guys. So think about that. If you're having trouble in your personal practice with your zills, maybe try getting a smaller pair. So you can build up that speed. It's like trying to shimmy full out from the beginning. You've got to mm -hmm. take it slow and work up with like either a metronome or just knowing your speed and work up to those really faster, faster shimmies. It's mm -hmm. the same. So if you're having too much trouble with your shimmy, you scale it back mm -hmm. and you go slower. So if you're having trouble with your finger symbols, scale it back. Maybe try some smaller ones. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's no shame. There's no shame at, in practicing more frequently with lighter, smaller finger symbols, and then you know building building your way up. And that's what I really like. You know, I I don't get any money for pimping Soroyan, so I'm just saying this because I because <laughs> I happen to own ten pairs. But uh, I you know when I have new students, it doesn't happen very often. Most of my students are pretty advanced. But when you have new students, I always recommend they start with the smallest, like kid-sized finger symbols, mm -hmm. and that they get used to the feeling of compression around their finger and thumb tips, and that they get used to having their hands fully extended, and that they drill with small, tiny finger symbols, and then build up over time. And at some point in, in that that build up, you might wind up with some big saucer sagat, you know, that you've gotten from Egypt and be able to jam on them. But if you start there, you're never going to be successful. You're always going to be fighting the weight. So. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for that tip. Cause that's, <laughs> that's great. So, uh, on the other side, cause times have changed, right? We were talking about this mm -hmm. when you were a student mm -hmm. back in the beginning, it was, it was almost required. I mean, for you, it was yeah. required yeah. that you learn symbols from the get-go. But now I think it's a lot of, um, it's very optional. And it's, it's almost kind of fallen out of fashion, quote unquote, in the belly dance space to play Zills. So what, um, how do you feel about, about Zills being part of like a general practice? You know, here I'm going to get super opinionated. I think there was a period of time in the Zill arms race, let's call it the Zill arms race, um, when, you know, when it was like, okay, I want to learn to play Zills like that dancer. And that dancer is a pro and using giant Zills and, and playing amazingly. And you go, wow, I will never get there. And there was a point in time where in the early, in, you know, I'm going to say around 2000, 2004, in that range, in that period, that's the time zone when Zills fell out of favor. Mm -hmm. And it's the time zone when a lot of people flooded into our dance. 
So okay. we suddenly had a lot of new teachers. We had new styles. We had a lot of experimentation. There was a lot of money floating around. People had money to splash out. Shakira was on the airwaves. There was this huge interest. Miles started the Belly Dance Superstars. So there was a flood. And in order to accommodate teaching the flood, people had to dumb down their classes. In order to accommodate having classes for everyone, people who weren't as high level teachers started teaching. And so when you simplify your class, when you're teaching a six week class to people who are only gonna take that six week class, you don't put zills in it, mm -hmm. right? And that was a time when people wanted belly dance moves for the club to dance to Shakira, to, you know, to take into the nightclub space, you know, you know, we had this moment where belly dance music, you know, this Middle Eastern music sort of invaded Western popular music for a while, and then it sort of lost favor, so it's not as well known or well used right now, but, but if you think about it, we had to produce a bunch of belly dance teachers, and so, yeah, and, and so, things fell out of favor. And, you know, there's lots of justification for it. Oh, well, you shouldn't play Zills with a live band. You know, you'll set the band off. And it's like, no, people are dancing to big Egyptian orchestras. People are dancing at the coffee shop to pipe to canned music most of the time. Let's face it, you know, we, we live in a hobby space. And the hobbyists didn't need finger symbols. And mm -hmm. so why teach it? If you're teaching hobbyists, why teach it? And then the 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 dime dropped oh my gosh if you've been dancing for two years and you've been taking classes for two years without playing zills it's harder to learn them and add them in yes and so during that period where there was a lot of turnover in classes and a lot of high popularity and new teachers and this sort of simplification of the dance vocabulary i mean moves simplified um props simplified I like to dance with a tray on my head. It's not the most common prop anymore. You know, it's like, it's veil swords, you know, veils and swords. That's what we're doing, veils and swords. Canes, yeah. So um, the, as things simplified, people, people would still get hooked. Okay, wow, I took a class and then I took a class with that teacher and now I'm hooked. I'm a belly dance lifestyler. I made this, the jump from a student to it's now part of my lifestyle part of my identity and then you're taking intermediate to advanced classes and you're either assumed to have already learned finger symbols and you have to jump in feet first and oh my god that's painful so you don't study with that teacher right mm -hmm. or you go wow i don't need finger symbols i didn't learn it right and it's because and now we've got a whole generation of people that was 2000 to 2005 let's just make that simple and now those people are teaching and they're not teaching finger symbols. Mm -hmm. And it, it, you know, it's kind of the same thing with sewing. There was a gap. People didn't have home ec. People didn't learn to sew. Now we've got this new maker culture where people are, are craving the make. They're learning to sew. They're watching YouTube videos and learning to sew. Well, this is what has to happen in the world of dance. We need to rediscover finger symbols mm -hmm. and replace them back into our dance. And in order to do that, we have to make it fun, we have to make it interesting, we have to make it craveable as teachers and performers. That's excellent. An excellent breakdown of what we need to do, I think, to bring it back. Because that that is absolutely true. Because you, 
I didn't, I think the first two, I think you're right. It was like two or three years of my dancing. I didn't have to play. Um, mm. I would do it every now and then like for a choreography that I was doing with like the student troupe, but uh -huh. it wasn't a thing that I had to know how to do until I moved out to Los Angeles and I started studying with people like Zara Suhair and with Princess Farhana and like with Helena Vlahos, right? Yeah. Like you have to play the Zills. Right. Suddenly right. it was feet first. I was like, oh crap. All right. I got to learn. Dive in. And that was fine for me. I have the kind of personality that will do that, but mm -hmm. some people don't. Exactly. And that's where and I get lost. And this is where people pick and choose who they study with. And they go, well, you know, I can, I can choose studying with this person or that person. That person's easier. As a hobbyist, I don't need to play finger symbols. I can make that decision not to integrate that. Or you can, you know, you can look at instructors who teach with finger symbols. And again, online and, you know, videos and instructionals. Finger symbols is one of those things you can actually learn at home and teach yourself, you know, so you can actually, you have to practice and you have to drill. Finger symbols require a, a higher level of commitment because not only do you have to learn to dance with them as a prop, but you have to learn to play them as a musician. Mm -hmm. And so it is, it is its own, it's like adding a whole layer of knowledge to your knowledge base. And, you know, if you're just a hobbyist, you go, woo, that's for professionals. I don't need to do that. And so if we can, and I think, I think it becomes very intimidating, you know, because you buy the big zills and you, you get them and you're just not good immediately. So you set them aside mm -hmm. and there's no instant Woohoo! I'm, I'm wailing on the zills. It takes dedication and practice and integrating it into your daily dance practice. And that's assuming you have a daily dance practice. Because I think a lot of hobbyists, they go, okay, I'm going to dance once a week because I take dance class once a week. And that's my, that's my, you know, that's my practice is the dance class. And they don't go home and dance every single day, yeah, you know, so they're not playing, playing finger symbols every day, et cetera, et cetera. That's what all of our resources here at the Belly Dance Bundle are about, right? It's figuring yeah. out what to practice, figuring out when to practice, figuring out how to get yourself to practice because that, if it's not daily, it needs to be near daily yeah. practice to really improve on the things you want to improve on. Now, uh -huh. if you don't want to improve on those things, that's fine. Choices. But just let it go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. don't worry about it so much and let it should you to death, right? Because that happens yeah. to so many. Well, and I think if you have a tiny pair, tiny, you have a teeny tiny pair of finger symbols, if you have a very small set of finger symbols, you know, that aren't super loud, that are very comfortable to wear for the duration of your practice and practicing wearing them first, that's the first step. And I think starting small and getting something that isn't painful, doesn't hurt your ears, isn't annoying the neighbors, <laughs> that's really the key to making that first step. It's saying, okay, I'm gonna buy the right set. I'm gonna buy a starter set. You know, whether they're Tinkerzils or from Soroyan or student grades, the smaller set from Turquoise International, you know, I'm not talking about buying some Zildjian dinner plates for concert use. I'm talking about some very small, light, tinkling pleasant sounding finger symbols the more pleasant they sound the more likely you are to wear them the more comfortable they are the more likely you are to wear them and then just add them to your practice just put them on even if you don't play them wear them 
and then start with accenting the music and wear them and accent your music and then wear them and follow the beat and then wear them and, and play lyrically. But start by wearing them in silence, wearing them every time, getting used to their feel, getting used to their weight. That was some awesome advice, Don, for people at home. So guys, take that, use it in your daily, near daily practice. Whenever you get a chance, just strap those little bitty zills on and go to yeah. town because it's yeah. the way to get better. It like really is the way to get better. So Dawn will be giving a talk in this year's Belly Dance Bundle. It's the history of finger symbols from antiquity till today. However, if you're interested in reading something on the topic right now, you can go check out her book, Zill, Music on Your Fingertips. If you're interested in hearing her speak on finger symbols, though, and checking out some of these primary sources we were talking about, check out the 2019 Belly Dance Bundle, which will be on sale from October 16th to the 23rd of 2019. So other than the bundle, Dawn, where can people find your work? So I, I have a very active Facebook presence. And in fact, this month, September is Zill month. So each month I pick a topic and I share historical facts, you know, like a factoid every day or two. And so I am just Dawn Divine on Facebook. Of course, I have a Facebook page as well for the great and almighty Divina, oh, where I list um, my upcoming events and things like that. But really, if you want uh, nuggets of knowledge, um, follow me on Facebook. I also have a blog and I post weekly, though I've been uh, I've been a slacker this summer. So I'm going to get back in on that. That's what next, summers are for. Next week. If you're looking for her on Facebook, it is uh, Dawn Divine, but it's D-E-V-I-N-E, which is a mistake I constantly make. So yeah. it will also be in the show notes for this episode. We'll have links to her Facebook page and stuff, which you can follow. You don't have to actually friend her. Um, in case that's a Facebook thing of yours. But Dawn, thank you so much for joining us today. This was awesome. And I really hope that some people walked away with not only some really great tips for their personal practice, but some new knowledge on the history of Zills. Well, it is my pleasure. I love sharing. I did all this research for a reason. And I love having an opportunity to share it. So thank you very much for including me in the lineup of your uh, podcast and uh, for the bundle as well. Thank you. So are you amazed? Because I'm still amazed. For me, finding out the history behind our Zills really inspires me to try to do them justice. So that means practice. A lot of practice. Take Dawn's tips here and use them whenever you've got Zills lying around. You can even wear them for some of our other challenges during the 21 Days of Belly Dance or any other drills that you see here on the Belly Dance Bundle that have nothing to do with Zills. Just get used to having them on quietly or making your hands look pretty when you're wearing them. I really do like Dawn pointing out here that with Zills, you're not only learning to be a dancer with Zills, you're learning to be a musician. And I think that can put into context a lot of the anxiety that some of us feel around Zills and explain some of the anxiety that I still feel sometimes when someone who is a musician starts to talk about Zills. The terms that they use and the way that they talk about Zills sometimes makes me freeze up because I don't feel like I know what they're talking about. You're definitely not alone if you feel some anxiety about Zills in your practice. But... We can take a deep breath, we can know that we are awesome and we are great, and that as we do with everything else in this dance, we will bring our best to the dance floor every time. And that will be enough. 
If you liked the history shared in this episode, you're definitely going to want to pick up a copy of Dawn's book, Zill's Music on Your Fingertips, and or check out the 2019 Belly Dance Bundle, where she'll be giving that presentation that we chatted about for those primary sources she wasn't able to include in the book in their visual form. The Belly Dance Bundle, if you haven't seen it before, is a collection of classes, workshops, and more collected from dancers all around the world. I make it a point to try to round out each bundle so that it's not only just technique or just choreography, but also has several elements like this lecture, which focus on the history or the culture of our dance, or in this case, something highly related to it. This bundle then goes on sale once a year for one week only and is over 80% off the total price of the combined classes. It's nuts that our contributors let me do this, so if you can, you're going to want to get it when it's available. So be sure to stay tuned into our Instagram where you will find the 21 Days of Belly Dance or you can join our mailing list at thebellydancebundle.com to be sure to know all of the updates. And if you would like links to any of Dawn's books or her other work, please check out thebellydancebundle.com slash seven where you can find all of the show notes for this episode. Now, go strap some brass on your fingers and start making some noise because we have ancient history to honor. 